Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're at. Um, well, let me, I, I want to welcome Neil and Brett are here. Um, does anybody here mind if you go on camera? And if you any of you do, I won't. Does anybody mind if I identify you by your first name? Does anybody online mind to be seen on camera? No, I do. So here we are tonight. There's David, Dhamma teacher David, almost Dhamma teacher Mary, Neil behind her. Brett over there, there's Jennifer, Bridget, Dhamma teacher Kevin, Dhamma teacher Ron. Online, you'll notice Brian and Julia and Jane incognito. There she is. <laughs> there you are. Good to see you, Jane. Um, so we're at the 20th class of our, I think it's 19th or 20th class of our um, 32 class structured study. I don't know what's more distracting um, and so uh, I think eight classes ago or so uh, we we uh, started with the three classes on the Arya Pariyasana Sutta just to put where we are tonight in context um, the Arya Pariyasana Sutta is the Buddha's teaching an important teaching on recognizing noble and ignoble searches so that we can abandon ignoble searches and just focus on the noble search framed by the Eightfold Path. And again, there's many suttas like that, but that one particularly uh, relates to our study. Um, you know, just a quick note about that structure study, because somebody asked me today, I think, or the day before, why do you do it? And so most of our classes now are part of structured studies. And it took a while to develop that, even just to have enough suttas um, uh, to, to do fairness to any particular subject like jhana, um, four foundations of mindfulness, four noble truths, Satipatthana Sutta, it doesn't matter. Um, and so those of you that have been practicing here for a while will notice that we use many of the same suttas in different structured studies. Mm -hmm. And that is so that you can establish first the foundation, however you do that, just coming to class, and then by using different suttas in relation to different topics or subjects, this allows all of us to nuance nuance out the sanghas in that, or the suttas in that way. And those of you that have been around long enough, and it doesn't take all that long, have see that see that that's what we're doing. Is that right? For does that everybody recognize that's what we're doing? Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, following the Aryapariyasana Sutta. Um, the next sutta was the Nagara Sutta, where the Buddha teaches us how he recognized the common human um, characteristic of getting caught up in the feedback loop of self-referential views stuck in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. In other words, it was Siddhartha's own ignorance of the simple to understand but possibly difficult to grasp Four Noble Truths that kept him in ignorance of the fact that he was constantly eye-making or selfing or engaging in an ongoing life experience of self-reference. And so the Buddha introduced his Dhamma to recognize 
as it occurs, wise restraint, life as life occurs, in this moment, my eye-making. And that is the whole point of the Buddha's Dhamma, to recognize eye-making rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths, so to end it, period. Not to judge it, not to analyze it, not to beat yourself up over it, not to become um, uh, so aggrandized with yourself that you have actually done it. Because doing this to its conclusion is the most ordinary thing any human being can ever do. Of course, it's also the most extraordinary thing. I say ordinary because all we're doing is becoming a human being, but a wide awake, fully mature human being. And so this sutta, um, following that Nagara sutta, uh, two suttas on exactly what the Four Noble Truths are, uh, Sariputta's analysis of Four Noble Truths. So we know exactly what we're looking for and what we're hoping to develop. Sariputta concluded the Sakavabhanga Sutta with an explanation of the Eightfold Path, the Fourth Noble Truth. And then the last class we had was on the Magavabhanga Sutta, which is the Buddha's analysis of the Eightfold Path. So there's no question in our mind here, there, there should not be um, any, any questions or ambiguity about what our practice is. Now, in the beginning of practice, there is a lot of questions about exactly how to do this, how to, how to integrate the framework and guidance of the Eightfold Path for this moment and the next moment and the next moment. So your ongoing Dhamma practice, you could say, is really how to understand all of that and simply put it into practice. And so this is a, a great sutta in that it gives us a very um, memorable metaphor of and also clear instruction on how to know when we're still engaged in a, in a Dhamma practice, but maybe not recognizing that we've gotten off track in, in, in some almost imperceptible ways. But again, this is why we have jhana meditation as the sole meditation practice, so that we are well concentrated enough to do what's described here, to recognize when we're caught, in essence, a cesspool. The Buddha's words from the Jambali Sutta, Angatara Nikaya. Friends, there are four types of Dhamma practitioners, and there are no more. So for the sake of the Dhamma, you know, we could list all kinds of different Dhamma practitioners. For the sake of the Dhamma, there are four types. And every Dhamma practitioner at one point or another in their Dhamma practice will fit into one of these classifications. Why is it taught so that we can recognize that we're there? And if we're in a good space, continue. And if we're not, change. That's all. There is a type of Dhamma practitioner that enters and remains in mental absorption, the jhanas, and experiences a certain peaceful, a certain peaceful awareness release. A certain, you know, it's, it's describable and experiential. They are mindful of the cessation of self-identification, but even as they are mindful of the cessation of self, self-identification, their mind is enraptured with release. I just mentioned that in a slightly cruder way. We're, we're getting self-aggrandized with the practice. Their mind is enraptured with release, with cessation. We think we're doing something extraordinary and something that we might be able to brag about. It sets us apart, isn't it? And that was, I didn't realize at that time, but that was my real interest in Eastern religions. And I won't get into the, to the why, but I had a good reason to think that through Eastern religions, I could find some magic, some power that only a very few had, especially me. 
And this would set me apart. This would resolve all of my issues of self-loathing, of not being good enough. And think about that just in, a, um, in an objectionable way that any human being could come to the conclusion that they needed magic. They needed something extraordinary to just live in the world. And that I firmly believe that with every ounce of my being. And I think most of you, when you think about it, would realize that in one sense or another, in one direction or another. Their mind is, is not enraptured with release, with cessation. They do not grow confident or steadfast or well-established in the cessation of self-identification. That's why we say here all the time, notice, I think I said it to every one of you who walked in, how's your Dharma practice? Notice that it's bearing fruit, that it's beneficial to you, not to the world. The world will notice. And I bet every one of you has had someone comment on your changing demeanor but that you notice that it's bearing fruit. Why? So you get back to your cushion again and again. So you'll return to your cushion when you don't feel like it. Or when someone might question your um, devotion. Why are you doing something like that? Or even another Buddhist practitioner says, no, no, no. The Buddha taught, taught much more than that. Remember the sutta. And remember why the Buddha taught this 2,600 years ago and it's just as relevant today. They do not grow confident or steadfast or well-established in the cessation of self-identification. For them, the final cessation of self-identification cannot be expected. If they continue with this mindset, they might even continue with their Dhamma practice, but unless something happens, and it could be just continued Dhamma practice, but something must happen to interrupt that particular train of thought, conditioned thinking, and move it towards what we're going to touch on in just a moment. Then the Buddha gives us this wonderful metaphor. It is just as if one were to grasp a branch with hands sticky with rosin. They would cling to the branch. In the same manner, one who remains in mental absorption and experiences a certain peaceful release, but continues to cling to wrong views, they are not enraptured with release, with cessation. They do not grow confident or steadfast or well-established in the cessation of self-identification. For them, the final cessation of self-identification, again, cannot be expected. It's almost, well, it is saying, stop that practice. Don't give up on the Dhamma. You're doing something right, but there's something that needs an adjustment. And again, the Buddha doesn't leave anybody at any point where he says, notice this, this is not Dhamma practice, this is what you do. He always tells that. He doesn't, never leaves anybody hanging, ever. Okay, who's got my glasses? Sorry. I'm sorry about this. This, should, uh, this condition should lift one of these days. Um, now, just another point about that. They continue to cling to wrong views. This also relates to the second, um, the, the second noble truth: the craving for and clinging to fabricated views, or or the arising of fabricated views in the world. Clinging to that maintains ignorance. So, do you see how this sutta and many others relate directly to the four noble truths in that way? So, this is a teaching, not directly on the four noble truths, but in the context of 
Four Noble Truths and in the in the structured study of jhana meditation. They do not grow confident or steadfast or well established in the cessation of self identification. Then there is a type of Dhamma practitioner that enter, enters and remains in mental absorption. They, they have a jhana practice and experience a certain peaceful awareness release. They're developing um, a, a reference to, the, to a deepening level of jhana. And so now there's some peace that they're recognizing, a certain um, an, an awareness of, yes, there's peace here. There's peace within me, within the mind, not out there. You know, it's here. They are mindful of the cessation of self-identification. As they are mindful of the cessation of self-identification, their mind is enraptured with release, with cessation. They want to give up these fabricated views and they want everything that goes along with it, including the difficulties of practice. I didn't even look at who that was. I hope it's not someone. I better check. Ah, hi, Slob. How are you? Good to see. Uh, doing good, John. Thank good, you. Good to see you, my friend. I'm glad you made it. Um, so we're about in the middle of tonight's sutta. They are mindful of the cessation of self-identification. As they are mindful of the cessation of self-identification, their mind is enraptured with release, with cessation. So enraptured in, in is maybe a little bit of an archaic term, but rapture means joyful engagement with it. We're not referring to the second coming. Joyful engagement with So enraptured means that we are joyfully engaged. We have that kind of um, mind and body commitment to it. You know, it, it, It's meaningful to us. It's not just something we're doing out of road because that crazy bald guy in Frenchtown says we should. We're doing it now because we have experienced this. We've had a certain peaceful release. They are mindful... Uh, let's read that again. They do grow confident and steadfast and well-established in the cessation of self-identification by noticing it. For them, the final cessation of self-identification is to be expected or can be expected. And what is the difference between the two? Excuse me. It's a very subtle point, but if anybody wants to answer, please do. It's simply the, the recognition of in that moment of eye-making or not. So the one who is growing enraptured with their accomplishment is eye-making, aren't they? But the one is simply growing confident in the peaceful release. Simply what is present without embellishing it in any way can be expected to continue and to reach the cessation. And so it is in this way that I say, I'm sorry, I keep doing this. It is in this way that I say that as we deepen our concentration, we we can then practice the whole Dhamma practice. Do you see? Because it requires concentration, not just the idea of concentration, but the recognition of concentration taking place. Just like we, we have the classes on recognizing deeper levels of jhana absorption, mental absorption, that is just taught so you, you recognize that your jhana meditation is actually deepening concentration. That's all. Again, notice there's no gold stars getting for deepening concentration, what we're supposed to be doing. It's ordinary in a very extraordinary way. And so this sutta is the same. Now we're just looking at the different conclusion 
that a Dhamma practitioner, one who is practicing it in accordance with the Dhamma, and one who is still fabricating. All right, so now we're, we're looking at one who is developing it in accordance with the Dhamma. So, hey, John. Excuse me. Yeah, yes, David. Would that be exactly what Bridget was describing? Yes, yes, exactly. Just a little bit more of that. Well, just the, the common thing we all experience is you notice when you're not practicing, she noticed. Yes. Yeah. And the only thing she needs to do is what you said, is be gentle and not judge yourself. Yeah. Because it was in just the noticing that you're practicing the Dhamma. Right, Bridget? Not, we're not putting words in your mouth. And that, that was your experience. Yeah, and, and again, it it almost seems uh, so simple and maybe at times so soft that is this really worth it? Is this is this meaningful? But yes, in fact, it is the almost imperceptible recognition of Dhamma practice that is the most important to recognize, isn't it? Because it's it's that Dhamma practice that is manifest between our breasts, between this moment, and it's the continuation of concentration and refined mindfulness from one moment to the next. And then what happens when we lose it? We do it all over again. We don't judge ourselves, and we find ourselves right back in this moment. How do we know? Because of our Dharma practice, we recognize, in this moment, my mind is agitated. I'm grasping after something, or I'm, I'm avoiding something, or I just don't want to be me in this moment. You know, sometimes it's just like that. You want to run away. And if you feel like that, it's okay. Recognize that right now this moment is overwhelming. And if you have to run away, run away. And later on in practice, when you sit on your cushion, take a breath and recognize you were being a human being. And you learned from that, didn't you? You learned what it meant to in that moment for 10 minutes or 45 minutes or a half a day or three weeks, what it means to lose your mind. And it's not so bad. One of the best things I ever learned from a good friend of mine was Brother Ken. He had nine nervous breakdowns, whatever they call it today. I don't know if it's the same thing. And he used to have these great philosophical um, discussions with Brother Ken. He, he lived up in a monastery in Netcom. Right near you, Julie, is no longer there. Um, and he'd always conclude this or saying, you know, I, I'd kind of like feel him out. What was it like? And he says, it's no big deal to lose your mind. You just get another one. And that's one of the most brilliant things I ever heard. Because all of us get a new mind every moment if we're actually practicing the Dhamma or, or recognizing it, don't we? It's the great promise of humanity and being in this present moment. This moment, and it is, my mind has never experienced this moment. Or this moment. Or this, or this, or this. And our awareness keeps growing in the Dhamma. So even in reference to the Dhamma, each moment is fresh. David brought that out on our last retreat in a way that I never saw it before. Someone was mentioning to David, uh, Larry, about the repetition of the Dhamma. Isn't it remarkable how you hear the same thing over and over again and yet it's, it's applied differently? And David said to Larry, yeah, but it's because you're different. But he also said, what is most brilliant is, and the teacher is different. And of course I am. I hope I am. I hope all of you continue to grow as teachers. Or we're not practicing the Dhamma, are we? Or I think it'll get pretty stale. So let me try to continue, finish this tonight. <laughs> Sorry. This is a short sutta, by the way. The metaphor. Just as if one were to grasp a branch with clean hands, they would not cling to the branch. 
In the same manner, one who engages fully with the Eightfold Path remains in mental absorption and experiences a certain peaceful awareness release. They continue to diminish wrong views and their mind is enraptured with release, with the, with the Dhamma practice itself, with cessation gradually. Remember the sutta, and it's coming up again, ending fabrications one after another. When it, that's how we do it. It's not all at once for most of us. It's recognizing a fabrication, the, the, the experience of eye-making in this moment, and simply abandoning it. They do grow confident and, and steadfast by recognizing that you're doing it and well-established in the cessation of self-identification. Now, well-established in doing this, you're doing it yourself. The Buddha always referred to himself as a rightly self-awakened one. And he teaches us, and he teaches us the same way. And he said exactly the same thing. I teach you to be rightly self-awakened one. Nobody's doing it but us as individuals. A Buddha can only facilitate it. And what is he facilitating? What is any Buddha facilitating? He's facilitating your Buddha-ness, your awakening. That's all that Buddha means. It just means awakened. It's the most ordinary aspect of a human being. Ordinary in, a, in, the, in the sense that it's what we are. Extraordinary, and most human beings never realize it. You know, just, just to make the comment, I think some human beings do realize it. I would say nobody here. <laughs> but someone like Krishnamurti, I, I believe, has. And some of you have studied Krishnamurti. If you, if you want, listen to him. The, the problem with, with a man like Krishnamurti, and he had great compassion. He was a true bodhisattva, bodhisattva. But like the Buddha used to describe himself as a bodhisattva, prior to my awakening, when I was an unawakened bodhisattva. What is he saying? He said, I had this great compassion that most human beings have, except true psychotics, and that's very rare. But he's saying, as a, as a unawakened bodhisattva, I was lacking the wisdom to know what to do with that great compassion. And so subject to causing great harm in the world. We don't need, subject, we don't need examples of that. We know it. But now, as we develop the Dhamma, we're no longer unawakened bodhisattva human beings with this great need to help others. That's our connection to others, by the way, isn't it? Even if it's just to hold the door open, that makes us feel good. Why? Because it's our connection to our humanity. But many of us hold the door open with an expectation of a thank you. We've lost our mind, haven't we? It's the holding the door that's most important. It's the, it's the cessation of eye-making that holding the door represents. That's the most important part of that act, isn't it? And you all see that. It's simple. Taking it even further to these grand levels of eye-making is the same thing. But what are we doing then? What are we doing when we're caught up in, in the, the greatest dream we've ever been caught up in or we recognize we're caught up in the worst nightmare? I'm done. I'm done in that moment. In the next breath, I might be back in it. But if I can recognize it in that moment, if I can recognize in that moment the quality of concentration and stillness just for a moment and feel what the Buddha is describing here, 
feel a deep appreciation for what you've done for yourself. We don't use the word soul here, but if I did, I would say you've just touched your soul. But what I'm saying is you've just touched yourself. And that's the whole point. And if you don't recognize it, who else will? Who else will? So get the rosin off your hand. You know, come into this with clean hands or as clean as you can. Now, how do you do it? You practice within this, this simple framework. That's how we keep our hands clean. That's how we don't start grasping after with sticky hands. I'm going to try to finish this, I promise. All right, where's my glasses? Thank you. For them, the final cessation of self-identification can be expected. They're going to they're going to they're going to conclude this path. They're going to awaken. Then there is a type of Dharma practitioner that enters and remains in mental absorption and experiences a certain peaceful awareness release. They are mindful of, of breaching ignorance of four noble truths. You might say, "Wow, this is it!" But their minds are not enraptured with release. They're not engaged in the joyful engagement of their own. Dhamma practice of their own release. Why? Why? How could that happen? Because that person, that Dhamma practitioner, and I was one of them, is still hoping to incorporate something else. And when you practice, and those of us that have been, uh, that have been practicing in other practices, we have a good teacher right there, it's very, very hard to let go of things that we have a vested interest in, simply because we put a lot of time and energy and self-identification and you know I've been teaching teaching uh, I've been teaching long enough to make this statement that those are the ones that I've seen that have had the hardest time fully integrating the Eightfold Path and keeping everything else out but I know many that have done it but it is it's a little bit more difficult to do so again because you first have to say man this stuff that I really believed in that it was my nirvana it's not it and it doesn't mean that you have to discount all of that experience. I would bet that Ram still thinks fondly of that time. Correct? I do. But mostly Please, as I'm sorry. In, in, in the sense of the... Uh, for me, it was mostly in the sense of being in, in a sangha. Yes. But the hardest thing to let go of was uh, <clears throat> this idea that, that I, I had this knowledge. Yeah. It wasn't even the belief that I had this yeah. knowledge. You owned it, it was valuable to you. It's all my knowledge and, and you know, one thing after another I had to just give up and say, Okay, no, I don't know this. Yeah. I, I, I hope everybody heard that. You know? Again, thank you, Rob. You just don't notice it. Right? Okay. Keep promising I'm gonna finish this tonight. Their minds are not enraptured with release with cessation. So this person is one who is more um, proud that they're Dhamma practitioners, and that's really as far as they want to go with it. They, they're, um, and they might continue to, to practice. They might continue to come here, but that's as far as they go because that's as far as they want to go. They don't want to go any further. And in that person, some of you may have noticed. Sometimes I, I might. I might be a little bit too straightforward with someone, or might be, it might seem like I'm giving someone a needle too much from that seat. And you're right to notice it, but I hope you also realize that um, every now and then we all need a little nudge. And sometimes it's not 
always, um, I don't want to say it's not always, it's not with pain, but it's not always pleasant. But as Dhamma teachers, and we have uh, one, two, three, four four and three quarters here, um, we have to do it. You know, we have to do it. But also, when we're doing it to you, it's also exampling to, to you to do it for yourself, to remember. Sometimes you've got to pride yourself to keep doing this, right? If you're not enraptured with your practice, it can change, but notice that you're not. If it feels like something that you're just doing out of um, kind of just grudging acceptance that you think it's right, it's okay, but recognize that that needs to change. And you can talk to me about it. You can bring it up in class because every one of us, I've been there, you know, questioning. Doubt is something that's one of the hindrances that, uh, by the way, Tom from England is going to be teaching Saturday's class on the Avarana Sutta and the five hindrances. Um, So try to be here just to give him some support, 8.30 on Saturday. Um, Let me continue. They do not grow confident or steadfast or well-established in the cessation of self-identification. They're simply not doing that. That's not part of their practice. For them, the final cessation of self-identification, if it continues, my words there, cannot be expected. Something has to change. And then the Buddha gives that metaphor again in slightly different terms. It is just as if there were a long-standing wastewater pool And during the dry season, a man blocks all inlets and opens all outlets. With inlets blocked and no rain falling, the breaching of the wastewater pool would not be expected. There's no pressure on it, is there? There's nothing going on. In the same manner, the the, the metaphor is now that your own practice is becoming the the block. You've gone as far as you can and you're... um, your ongoing Dharma practice itself is your distraction, right? Everybody understands that? Just because you're continuing to, to go on with practice, unless something changes, unless you recognize what you've done, or somebody else in the Sangha who, who might, because you might bring something up over and over again. That's the beauty of the Sangha, you know? And you'll recognize it, or I'll recognize it in myself, in this... Um, well-informed and well-focused sangha for the sole purpose to recognize and abandon it. This metaphor of the, of the blocked inlets, uh, it, I found it interesting um, how, that, how that relates to, to the practice. Uh, it, it, it feels to me that he's saying you're, you're, not, letting, you're not letting the wisdom of, of the Dhamma uh, in. Yes. You're, you're practice in, in in all in all uh, honestly, you're you're not practicing basically. Yes. You're not practicing the eightfold path. And so, what would if I'm sitting in practice in a in a dharma practice, and I'm not developing wisdom? Why not? So I got a new because you're not you're not practicing the way you should. You're, yep. you're not following the eightfold path. Well, it's because, as simple as that. Because I want to draw my own conclusions about Dhamma practice. Right? I don't want to follow someone who's awakened. Even, even while I say I'm coming to class and I might, and I might not even know this. Um, it's come up in a few it, um, rather extreme ways that kind of built to a, a situation that we dealt with 
some of you may not may know what I'm referencing. If you don't, it's okay. It's not all that important. But um, it it will either happen that way, um, usually not, or it will become so uncomfortable for you that hopefully you'll have enough trust built up in the sangha when it happens, because it'll probably happen to every one of you if it hasn't already, that you'll be able to come to class or come to one of your teachers and say, I feel like I've gone as far as I can. I'm not going any further. And it'll feel, you might describe it to yourself, even as a plateauing experience. I've often heard it described that way and I've described it to myself. Well, there's two things that are occurring and it's, it's both good and bad, skillful and unskillful. Anytime you feel that you're earnestly engaged in any activity that is bettering yourself, whatever it is, could be learning how to bowl if you thought that way. And you get to a point that you feel like you're plateauing. That is a time when you're integrating everything you learned. And it really is a time that your mind and body is just saying, slow down enough so you can recognize what you've just done for whatever it was. And it can be uncomfortable, especially if we're used to constantly grasping, constantly producing, constantly having to do something in the world. Some of us will just understand it and be able to stay with it. Um, so again, it, it's just that. When you, when you recognize that you're in that kind of state, what, what do you do? You continue. When you recognize you're, you're stuck in, in holding on to your values, it's probably coming up in this, in this example, in this metaphor. What do you do? You keep going and you keep talking about it. That's all you can do. It is, this is only taught not to say, if this happens, um, I jump on a pogo stick for 18 minutes. Maybe that would work, but that's not Dhamma practice, is it? So what do we do? We recognize that we're in a certain stage or a certain state or a certain quality of mind. Take a breath and continue with practice. So these are, these are only taught to recognize what's occurring to us. Okay. In the same manner, a Dhamma practitioner enter as, enters and remains in mental absorption and experiences a certain peaceful awareness release. They are attending to the breaching of ignorance. But they do not grow confident or steadfast or well-established. Excuse me. In the breaching of ignorance, and for them, the breaching of ignorance cannot be expected. Then there is the type of Dharma practitioner that enters and remains in mental absorption. They're, they're, de they're developing their jhana practice and experiences a certain peaceful awareness release. The same qualification up to a point, isn't it? We're noticing, and again, how did the Buddha describe the quality of an awakened mind? Nothing magical, nothing mysterious, just calm or peace. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Dhamma teacher, Kevin. Who was that mask man? They are mindful of breaching ignorance of four noble truths. Their minds are enraptured with release from ignorance. We are joyfully engaged with our practice. It's inspiring to us. They do grow confident and steadfast and well-established in breaching ignorance. For them, the final cessation of self-identification can be expected. So just a simple check on that. Is, is your practice developing this peaceful awareness, release a calm mind? Not forever and ever and ever, but do you recognize it? And do you grow confident that you can, um, I'm not going to say recreate, that you can take a breath and you're back in that moment, or that at least you can identify it in yourself. Because that's so important. 
And then, because of that, are you enraptured with your practice? And of course, the only way to get into truly enraptured with your practice is to truly take refuge in it, and we're going to touch on that again, but it simply means that you recognize, you recognize the value of what you're doing. Why? Because you recognize the results. Ehepasiko, come and see for yourself. Ehepasiko, recognize when your hands are sticky. Ehepasiko, come and see when your hands are clear, clean, and you're you're enraptured by the Eightfold Path rather than distracted by what's out there. And in that way, by any other path, right? We're almost done. Just as if there were a long-standing wastewater pool during the rainy season, (laughs) and a man opens all inlets and blocks all outlets, with inlets open, outlets closed, and rain falling. Let it come down. The breaching of the wastewater pool can be expected. In the same manner, a Dhamma practitioner enter, enters and remains in mental absorption, jhana, and experiences a certain peaceful awareness release. They are mindful of breaching ignorance of Four Noble Truths. We know that we've done it. How do we know? From our direct experience. Nobody can describe it, and nobody can have that experience for you, but you can have it. They are mindful of breaching ignorance of Four Noble Truths. Their minds are enraptured with the release from ignorance that they just experienced, that we just experienced. They do grow confident and steadfast and well-established in breaching ignorance. For them, the final cessation, the final cessation, again, the Buddhist, they, I think everybody noticed that the slightly um, more engaged quality that this last, Dharma practitioner is, is being described as. For them, the final cessation of self-identification can be expected. These are the four types of Dharma practitioners and the only four. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, I think we'll go online as we always do. And um, Brian, I think you were first. Let's go to Brian. How are you, Brian? Good. I I wrote down eight minutes ago, joyful engagement. <laughs> and then you said joyful engagement out loud. Um, Come on. I, other, I know that's, that's garbage, right? I didn't do that. Um, I did. There, there, the other thing that was coming through for me was the, not just intention, but resolve. Yeah. Um, and being resolved that that's that confidence and the steadfastness is that you know you you know through your own direct experience that cessation is possible and you've experienced it um and i can't help but think of my brain as a toilet and i'm flushing ignorance or something <laughs> coming through as well that, that um, perfect metaphor isn't it now you know they didn't yeah. have toilets back then to flush yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um I think that's enough. Thank that's you, yeah, that's that's great. Thank you, Brian. Mm-hmm. Hello, Julia. Hey, everybody, John. Wonderful. I'm feeling really grateful and thankful that I'm here tonight. Um, Brian, by the way, I peeped your new tattoo. It's nice and bright. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see you got a new one. It's got, oh. it's got a cat on it. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Put that up there. There's Brian. <laughs> as much as I can see about it, I'm impressed. 
Those eyes, Sonny. That's cool. Uh, right? Yeah. It's, it's me watching everybody. Very cool, man. <laughs> um, I got a lot out of this. And um, in the, from the very beginning, I really stuck with, for like years, I was like seeking Eastern philosophies and thinking that I could be, yeah, I really related thinking I could just, you know, be above everybody else if I just like knew more. Um, but that's just me like escaping what being a human is like. Yeah. <laughs> Great. I, that's exactly it. And uh, every, ever, ever since I started practicing um, in this class, my, I don't think I've had, I mean, I'm not going to say a hundred percent, but that I can remember, I don't think any day, like the days just keep getting slower and slower and longer. And I'm so thankful. And the morning always feels like days ago and not in like such an exhausting way, just like sometimes it's exhausting because depending on how many emotions and feelings and stuff I have throughout the day, but it's just wonderful. No matter like what I'm feeling, I'm thankful to feel it. Um, it's beautiful. And, uh, and uh, I have one more thing to add. Oh, and, you know, I've never really been okay. Like if I wasn't happy or if I wasn't, you know, if like we get that like dopamine feeling and yeah. it's like, woo, and it's just that, you know what I'm talking about, I hope, but oh, yeah. Yeah. just that happiness, that, that quick burst of happiness, because, you know, if we're just like having, you know, candy or chocolate or whatever it is, um, like that, if I'm, if I used to not be okay, like I used to think there was something wrong with me if I wasn't feeling that, or if I wasn't feeling happy. But now, like, if I don't feel like talking to somebody or if I'm just like, in a neutral mood or I'm tired or whatever, like I notice my self-talk is naturally like, it's okay. You feel this way. It's yeah. okay. It's okay. But instead of me being like, what's wrong with me? Why am I not happy? Why am I not? So yeah, that's, it's beautiful that I can, I just naturally talk to myself that way now. Yeah. So thanks for this class. Well, it's wonderful. Thank you, Julie, for all that. And that, that idea that I, you know, I, I was chasing it too. I'm going to find some kind of superpower. It's, gonna set me above everyone how antisocial is that thought i mean i didn't see it as that but and i really wanted to be anything other than a human being and i wanted that whatever that was to be better than everything out there it's really it's a it's a it's a sad thought but it's a common thought that many many human beings develop you know very early in their life and you know we, and i didn't understand it nobody nobody told me i had it now, even this this gathering of, of, of knowledge that I've done in my life is, is the same thing. It you is. Know, you just want to be better than everything. You want to be recognized yeah. for for knowing everything, you know, or knowing everything. Yeah, and it may be just be that you know everything about this this, this insignificant little detail of life. Yeah. But uh, that that's what you want to do. That's the one thing to keep that that ego, you yeah. know, firmly established and nailed to the floor. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's I, I was telling David, I, I, in the last year, I'm more curious, and I've always been a you know, curious guy, but I'm more curious about everything. You know, I, I mean, I could, I could notice a, the, the back wheel of a yellow school bus and want to know it. I mean, that, that's not quite that bad, but it's just that um, 
I guess I would say the more that I'm present with my life, the more the most insignificant things are mm-hmm. seem so significant. Why? Not because of what they can give me, but just because they're in, I made the reference. Well, I'm not going to talk about that. Um, just because we're present for it. It has meaning. Right, Jane? Thank you, Julia. Great, John. Thank you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Now, I came to the practice to get a release from stress. And I'm aware now that I am at peace. <laughs> you know, and present. But I'm also aware that I can't be complacent because I need, it's a daily practice, so. Thank you for that. Enjoying the fruits right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, it, the uh, it's not that tough, is it? No. <laughs> Thank you, Jane. Slav, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm glad I joined you guys. How do you feel? It, the Slav mind of... Uh, I feel right. Good. How's Let's your wife? It. Yeah, it's going to be a long journey for sure. Okay. All right. Well, I'm glad you joined yeah. us tonight. Yeah, me too. It's kind of like even small injection of Dharma is very helpful. It is. Yeah. Thank you, Slav. Bridget. I'm glad you're here. Hello, Jennifer. Hello. Um, yeah, laying out the four different types of um, levels of practice, practicing the Dharma and what to expect. Yep. It was very helpful to, to have it explained. Yeah. And I can see where I'm at with that. Yeah. And I am at the point where I see the benefits and when I'm not practicing, I'm very aware of the lack of my practice yeah. and how it affects me. Do you mean like, uh, just like this afternoon, I noticed that I was a little bit off or that you've missed practice for a few days? That I noticed that I'm off, yeah, yeah. you know, um, or just how I react to things yeah. or my mental state is very, very tied to how regular I am with my practice. Yeah. But I do know enough to see that and to know to take a breath, go back to my practice. That's and it. Believe that I am going to get to the next level. Yeah. You know, um, and just trusting in that. Yeah. And um, and knowing that I can't sidestep it in any way yeah. which is how I've operated a lot in the past yeah. like maybe I can get just enough of this thing that'll make me just well enough yeah. or smart enough or whatever and I'm good to go yeah. you know and um, and I can recognize that in myself yeah. that you know you really have to just do you know the practice and um, yeah and the rest will follow yeah, and it is, isn't it? It just follows. Yeah. There's, you know, and if you don't do it, it doesn't follow. <laughs> yeah, and it's just, it's just like that, isn't it? It is. It's, it's that yeah. simple. Yeah. But um, yeah, to hear it explained is very, very helpful. Thank you. Thank you. And again, what you're describing is uh, a, a, a 
um, well-established Dhamma practice. You're recognizing when you're, when you're not a mind united in its body, and you take a breath. You know, and it's like, it really is, I mean, obviously there's a lot more than just that, but it really comes down to that. That's where we practice wise restraint and, and incorporate everything that we've learned right, right here and right now. You know, there's, no, there's no Dhamma yesterday or the last moment. There's no Dhamma in the next breath or tomorrow. It can only, and all of life has to be experienced right here, right now, including the Dhamma. And that's what you're describing. You know? yeah. And it just, it just deepens, you know, that's all it is. So. Yeah. Thank you for your contribution. Brett, good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, thank you for your teaching. Um, you can definitely see how the cessation of stress or, or the, the potential is there to, for me, it's not running from what's occurring, feelings or, uh, you know, what's coming up in life and uh, kind of getting some stress out of my life and then being singularly focused on you know, not trying to take too much on at the moment. Um, how did, how how are you doing with that? Good. Good. I'm keeping one job and you know not stacking everything up and um, and I don't want to. I can't handle it. And uh, but you can see how you know it, it, it there's potential to be you know at peace. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice way to put it. The potential. So. Good to be here. Thank you. It's good that you're seeing it yourself, Brett, because that's where it is, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good to see you, Neil. Good to see you, John. Um, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm just where I'm at is, uh, you know, in the practice, there's moments of really being with the breath and realizing I'm in the present that moment and then there's you know the other side of it is like it's permission to feel however I feel that's right yeah rather than wanting to rise above that just notice it yeah that's it so that's like it's huge that's we talked about that that's incorporated into the Satipatthana Sutta Mm -hmm. that's why it's taught to, to depersonalize and disassociate in a healthy way from our feelings and our thoughts attached to our feelings and just see them as they are, you know. Mm-hmm. You know this is not me, this is not mine. But it's hard. Yeah. I'm glad you're here tonight, my friend. Me too. Dama teacher Ram. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I always love the 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 similes that he brings up because uh, it always it shows how how much of a, of a, a man of the world that he was oh, yeah. I mean he was out there and he was he was noticing everything you know, well, even something it, as as prosaic as as a cesspool yeah imagine was, the Pope using a metaphor I'm just kidding that <laughs> but to any religious leader just thinking of right. using it yeah and, and it works you know he, he describes how you know, in this, in the last one, is is how, when the practice really gets going, when it when it gets momentum, yeah. that you know, it just like it, it, when you're when the, when the rain season comes and this stagnant pool of sludge sits there, you know, for three months and stinks up the high heaven, 
and that's us know, unawakened, by the way. Is yeah, what describing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 the rains come, and and it it builds up to to the point where it just breaches. Yeah, and and everything gets flushed. Spoils the countryside. Just, yeah, it's yeah. not just that there's a, a you know you let a little bit out. No, it just the whole thing just blows out. And this is why we have more than one teacher, because I wouldn't have gone that far, but I'm glad you did. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's the same way with, with describing how, uh, how we finally get to this point where, where this whole calcified identity <laughs> that we build up over you know, the, the decades, that you, know, you, you actually build up a pressure with, 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 your, with your practice. And, kind of, yeah. And you and you really get to, you just flush out, you know, the last remnants of it. Yeah. And, and it, it's just I love the way he, he he brings those metaphors in there. Yeah, they're perfect. And and, and Brian too to modernize it with just that. <laughs> Go on. Thank you, Dama teacher Kevin. Thank you, John. Noble sounds today. I'm glad you're here. I was going to say almost 95, 98% Dhamma teacher Mary. <laughs> I'm 75% not that long ago. So. I know. It's, it's amazing what one class um, will do, right? Well, I, it, I thought of a lot of things, um, um, you know, like peace and equanimity is inevitable, you know, yeah. is um, something to, uh, you know, recall as you are... Um, Experiencing challenges, um, I I appreciate the theme of uh, direct experience and knowing and the calm and confidence that that can give you um, in your practice and on your journey. And then once you have that experience, you know what the knowing kind of means, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then recognizing, not like know, knowing what the knowing really means. That's you know. It's, it's more than just an intellectual exercise. Right. It? It, yeah. Well, as we said last week or a couple weeks ago, knowledge is one thing, but knowing yeah. is another. Um, I think that's pretty powerful. Um, and then knowing that there is, you know, at different times it'll feel like, you know, long, long way to go or... Okay. Uh, two steps back and, you know, all those kind of things that happen in life and uh, to just keep going, you know. Um, it's not that the hill is steeper, you just keep going because you know that that's, you know, the right thing to do, yeah. you know, to achieve the objective, so. For yourself. For yourself. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And again, that sounds so selfish, doesn't it? But. In effect, well, you're doing it for all sorts of Yeah, you said the word permission. I've often thought about the permissions that this practice affords. Permission to, you know, put your mask for, on first before assisting others, yeah. right? And, um, wow. you know, it, it, it busts up our norms so that we can release them and let them go. And then it's the releasing and the stripping down because the, the you was there all the time. It just got all jumbled up in all our beliefs and our yeah. thoughts and our norms and our expectations and all of that. And that's a lot of stuff to bust up. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so anyway, thank you. Thank you. That's great. 
Thank you. Thank you. I think about your the Buddha's describing four different practitioners. And I think of it in terms of I'm those four at any given moment. <laughs> yeah. And it's okay. Like Neil's saying that you're at peace with any version of it. I could be a shitty practitioner on Monday and totally different the next. And it's okay. Yeah. Just within the practice. Not that I take a week off and it's okay. Yeah. But it's it's permission to struggle and be distracted and be uh, have doubt yeah. and just understand it's not personal. Yeah. So. Yeah. Thank you. Again, none of these are to be taken personal. The Buddha never taught anything is personal. Just to recognize it so that you can change it. Period. So you don't get stuck in your own Dhamma practice, which again, the Buddha wouldn't have taught this particular sutta and many others like that if it wasn't common for people to get stuck in their Dhamma practice, even with a, a, you know, someone almost as good as me teaching them. Nobody picked up on it. Meaning the Buddha. Because it, it, you know, it, it's, again, it's not up to the Buddha. It's up to the people that are there. And, you know, as I was restoring the suttas, it became apparent to me that the Buddha was a, a, a great situational teacher. In fact, he could yeah. say he almost wanted to be. He wanted to hear, get some feedback or hear what's going on in the Sangha, and then he would teach to that. You know, nothing, again, nothing was conceptual. He wanted to know that what he was going to teach was going to be heard. And we do the same thing here, by the way. We, we use more structured studies, but in the way back when, you know, it was about 85 years ago when we started here, it was a lot of it, a lot of the suttas that we taught had to do with where the Sangha was. But now that we've established a certain foundation that we all kind of know or quickly come across, we can do these structure studies and really get into the nuanced aspects of the Dhamma, you know. And, um, yeah, and that, you're all... that was my reaction the first time you did a structured study. What? I remember thinking that I loved the theme, the idea of a theme and a series that could focus on something direct, direct uh, or targeted yeah. and really drill down in it and look at it from many different directions yeah. so that you almost forgot you were in a structured study because you were like, um, as if you never heard something before. Yeah, you know? even though you, you it, might have heard it five times. Yeah, exactly. Do you remember what which one that was? I don't remember the first one. No, I'm, I'm, I think I'm not that good. Out, but, <laughs> but I remember when you started. No, I, never, I can't remember what I really did yesterday. Okay. Yeah, there was this, it was the structured study on the inside. Impossible. Vipassana. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, yeah. That uh, right. I think yeah. that was like a 38 or 32 class. Right. Right. Yeah, we're going to do that again soon. I'm just yeah, not sure why. And, and on top of that, we have four four people in the at the same time in in the teacher training. That's right, and that was right when Michael and Julia came at the beginning of that. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Right. We're going to do that again soon. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it'll be this year or next. But we're running out of this year, aren't we? They came when? When is September? They came during the Dhammapada. September's over. Mm-hmm. I think. Right now. Uh, yeah, that's right. That was really another structured study. That you know. okay. All right. Um, 
Is there anything else? Let me put this on. What is the Dhammapada book coming on? Um, I was just going to mention that. The, the book itself is just about ready for publication. And in fact, I might publish it. And now I'm thinking I might even go to a hardcover for that because our Sangha member, and really is an incredible artist, uh, Larry Carlson is doing the illustrations for it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kind of yeah. like along the, you know, the, oh, what's that? The, the Oxherder picture is not that, you know, yeah. it's not going to, it's not going to be just as you know as have minimal as impact as that. It's going to be much bigger than the Oxherder pictures. But mm-hmm. the Oxherder pictures are a very famous set um, throughout the centuries of some Zen pictures that depict the Zen Dharma, uh, Dharma. Um, so yeah, that was it was uh, it was a lot, you know, that Larry agreed to do this because he's so busy. But he's diligently working at it, and uh, I might publish it before he gets done, just because I'm kind of ready to get it out the door. And then just add the illustrations there. But that's what's coming up. A lot of exciting things. There's going to be four books published in the next two weeks or thereabouts. That's actually a good um, profitability strategy. So, what's that? Like to release something, have it published, and then you have the newer version, and then with new releases, and then with new drawings. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah. And everybody has to have it. That's what I was thinking about. <laughs> Thank you. More than one release party, too. Yeah, right. More than one release party. There you go. We'll have oh, it at Larry's house. You know. That's right. Well, we <laughs> talked about, Mira, about having a, at least a teacher's retreat or maybe a, you know, a teacher's retreat yeah, plus. Nice. It's going to take a special invitation. It's going to be very costly, but <laughs> we'll work there. Dharma practice is going to continue. That's all I can say. Um, so again, we're, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the, this is the Karaniya Metta Sutta, Buddha's words on Metta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class tonight. Peace. Thank you. Thank you, John. See you all.
Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.